The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Wing Chun Illustrated is the premier publication for Wing Chun. Published six times a year, Wing Chun Illustrated is a perfect bound, full-color, glossy publication. Each 60-page issue comes packed with in-depth content and feature stories by and about the world's greatest exponents of Wing Chun, regardless of lineage or style. Wing Chun Illustrated has featured people like Imin Bostepe, Philip Bayer, Yip Chun, Gary Lam, Donald Mack, Samuel Kwok, David Peterson, Chan Chi Man, Mark Phillips, Wan Kam Leung, Sam Lau, Robert Chu, Sifu Sergio, Victor Ken, and many, many more. There are two ways you can enjoy this fantastic publication. Go to wingchunillustrated.com and order the magazine as a print-on-demand. The print quality is simply amazing. Or download the Magster app and get a subscription. That's Magster, M-A-G-Z-T-E-R. This way, when the new issue hits the stands, you'll automatically receive it as a download onto your smart device for offline reading. In fact, with your new Magster account, you can access the magazine on multiple devices, iOS, Android, Kindle Fire, and web browser. To make the deal even sweeter, listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast can use the coupon code DUDES to get a six-month complimentary digital subscription. That coupon code is DUDES, typed in all capital letters. Go to Magster, again M-A-G-Z-T-E-R, to register, add the six-month subscription to the cart, and apply the coupon code at checkout. The Dudes of Kung Fu love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Hey everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode. Uh, This episode, we talk a little bit about... uh, what a bare-bones, stripped-down version of JKD and Wing Chun looks like. And Alex and I have a lot of fun talking about his time in training in the non-classical uh, Kung Fu era of uh, John Fan Kung Fu. He you know, trained in the Seattle era a little bit with, uh, with some of Bruce Lee's students. And uh, this was a lot of fun, this episode. I enjoyed it a lot, and I hope you guys enjoy it, too. <laughs> of Kung Fu. Please welcome your hosts, Alex Richter and Big Sean Madigan. And we are back. Man, Alex, how are you, brother? Good, man. It's good to hear your voice again. How you been? Doing well, doing well. Feeling sexy and shit. I'm doing good, man. <laughs> so in other words, it's every Friday night with you. <laughs> oh, listen, it's Friday night. I'm like fucking sex appeal. Granted, I don't have that, 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 that growth of hair on the top of my head that you have, but I'm, um, you know, I'm about as sexy as a fat man can get right now. Yeah. Well, when did you start losing your hair? How old were you? Um, let's see. Fuck you very much. Let me think. Um, <laughs> well, you want to talk <laughs> shit about my hair? There you go. <laughs> Haters going to hate man. So, uh, uh, anything, uh, anything new in the exciting world that is Sean Madigan. Um, things are actually pretty good. You know, um, I've explained to people here before, I'm a pretty boring guy. Boring to me is good. I, uh, you know, I, I, I work, I spend time with my family. I play guitar and I talk to this fucking idiot once a week about on a podcast about Kung Fu <laughs> and, um, things are, things are actually pretty good. You know, um, I'm enjoying my guitar playing. In fact, you know, I forgot to tell you, we have a, a fan of the podcast um francis corden who he, he remember he played that song as like a thank you to us that's right okay he's coming over my house sunday oh really i thought he was it wasn't he from like europe or something he like was that? from spain but he's in living in new york now oh wow he, he lives in uh, i don't want to say where he lives but he he lives in new york and he we contacted each other you know 
BSing. He plays guitar. So um, he's coming over tomorrow. That's amazing, man. That's oh, awesome. Sunday, I'm sorry, Sunday. He's coming over Sunday to uh, to play a little guitar and talk some kung fu. And so if I should die and disappear, it's a guy named Francis Gordon. <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's coming over Sunday. And I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Cool. Um, anything? Doing, anything? Jim? Yeah. Well, actually, I, I it's been kind of strange for me lately. We had um a storage unit. So for people who don't live in New York city, uh, what, what they probably don't understand is our apartments are very small. We live in a very confined spaces. And when you are a, a martial arts nut like me, you, you basically collect and accumulate stuff over the years. Plus all the stuff from my childhood magazine, you know, all the inside Kung Fu magazines and training equipment that for some reason I, I can't part with and all sorts of stuff. So in, in my last apartment, we didn't have space for all of this. So we, we rented a storage unit, which is pretty typical for people who live in, in big cities like New York. And now we have a, a bigger apartment and we have space. And we decided that, well, it doesn't make sense for us to keep paying for storage when we have space. And it's probably a good idea to look through that stuff and realize we could probably throw away most of it, you know? Right, exactly, um, sure. Because if, if we've been living without it for the last four years, it's probably not that important. So I uh, went to storage yesterday and got all my stuff out and I've been going through it. And this was, uh, by the way, Sean, part of the reason why I wasn't able to record last night with you because I was just knee deep in all of this nonsense. And I, I start going through, uh, you know, I have like all these old magazines and I have inside Kung Fu magazines from the 60s, from the nice. 70s. From, and, and like we've discussed before, those older issues were really great. Like they had in-depth articles and and you know it was very different from you know what the magazines kind of turned into in the in the latter years and so um you know i'm organizing all this stuff and putting this stuff away and i found which i posted on facebook today um one of the books i got from jesse glover on non-classical kung fu oh, i have all three yeah <laughs> oh well so it's got to be about you is that what you're saying <laughs> I also have all three, but that was not the point of my post. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, for, for those who don't know, uh, Jesse Glover was Bruce Lee's first student. And uh, he learned essentially in, I, I guess, what's known as the pre-Jeet Kune Do era of Bruce Lee's teaching. So before Bruce Lee coined the term Jeet Kune Do and had evolved his teachings to a certain system or way of doing it. He, um, he was a little bit closer to Wing Chun and some of his students had different names for what he taught back then because um, besides Jun Fan Gong Fu, I don't think Bruce really, especially in the Seattle period, I don't think really he really had a name for what he was doing. So um, is that, am I accurate on that? Like, like um, that kind of pre, some of the pre JKD stuff wasn't, wasn't as directly labeled as the later stuff was. I think, I mean, it's best for always to check with historians that it is freaking idiot that's sitting on the other end of the microphone. But from what I, from what I've always remembered and being told was that right from the beginning, he was just, he used John Fan Kung Fu. Yes. Because I mean, for a whole host of reasons, because I think, I think, because especially a, a kid his age was uh, going from, you know, he had ADD of martial arts, right? One topic to another. Yes. And I think there was probably some, you would know better than this, there was probably some issue as to whether he was allowed to say he was teaching Wing Chun or right. not teach Wing Chun or did, or, and knowing Bruce's egomaniac, did he want to even give credit to Wing Chun? Who knew? Right. Like, who knew what was going on in his head? So I always heard it referred to as Jun Fan Gong Fu 
at that stage until you know Jeet Kune Do was coined. I think some of the early Seattle period students, like the ones that first started learning from him when he was kind of like FOB fresh off the boat from Hong Kong. Um, he, I don't think he had quite coined that term yet. I think it was not until he made Taki Kimura an official instructor and then Taki, I think used that. But I think like people like James DeMille and Jesse Glover and Ed Hart, right. I don't, I don't think that they kind of, I don't think that they really use it because I don't think that that term was really being used back then. So Jesse Glover called it non-classical Kung Fu and um, I remember a very funny story from one of my very first Wing Chun instructors in Seattle who comes from the line of James DeMille and uh, Ed Hart. And he told me that Ed Hart said that in the very early days, Bruce Lee just said he just called it the stuff. The stuff. We're right. going to work on the stuff, right? We're going to work on the stuff. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, well, I think Ed Hart always called his stuff the stuff. Yes, <laughs> which is pretty cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so, so yeah, so anyway, I found a, a book that I had, uh, uh, one of Jesse Glover's, uh, I guess one of the three books that he had written and I have all three, just in case anyone is wondering. And, uh, but the, that book was very special to me because, uh, I had overpaid, uh, $2 and 26 cents on that book. And Jesse Glover wrote me a check for $2 and 26 cents that I had overpaid. Cause he said, you know, for the kiddies out there who don't understand in the pre-internet days, you had to like send stuff in the mail with a check to get something. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't like just order it online and use your Google pay or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, I had overpaid $2 and 26. I guess I miscalculated the shipping or whatever. And Jesse Glover wrote me a check for the $2 and 26. I was over. So I have a signed check. I never cashed it because a signed cool. check by Jesse Glover is worth more to me than the $2 and 26 cents. So I kept it. And, uh, and it was for that book. And I found that book today among a lot of other really amazing gems. I found the old notes I took. I had articles written by David Peterson when I was a teenager that I had like gleaned off the internet in the very early days of the internet. And, and so Same like, here, I still have them. Yeah. It was very funny because like, I, I remember I had been reading stuff that David Peterson had, had written and other writers at that time. But like, I found I had a notebook, um, chock full of like articles written by everybody because this is before I had aligned myself like as a Lung Ting Wing Chun guy. I was still doing the non-classical Wing Chun stuff in Seattle. So I was like just kind of gathering all the information I could about Wing Chun in general. And it's very funny that I had I had notes and articles from people who I am now like friends with and know personally. But back then I was just some like skinny neck teenager, or, you know, <laughs> just like reading this stuff all wide eyed, you know. And, and so it's very funny how things change over time and it was a beautiful kind of nostalgic feel so i've been knee deep in boxes of stuff that i've been putting away which has uh, been both nice and and a bit overwhelming that, that's awesome and you know that, that story gives a good insight into the character of jesse glover who i i didn't know him at all but the idea that he refunded you this two dollars and yeah 60 cents 26 cents, 26 cents. <laughs> like you know listen he was not a rich man right i know that jesse glover was not a rich man you know, um, in fact, I, I have a friend of mine who has told me a lot of stories about Jesse Glover. Jesse basically lived in his house for a little while. And um, so, you know, Jesse was not a rich man. And to to send you back this this check, 
is just a small insight into the human being that he was. You yeah, know? yeah. And as a teenager, you can imagine for me, like being a huge Bruce Lee fan since I was eight, getting a check signed by Bruce Lee's first student. Oh, it that's amazing. Like, that's... It was like the biggest thing. And I still haven't, of course, Jesse Glover just passed away a couple of years ago. So now it's, it's definitely worth a lot more to me now. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely something that, that definitely brings a lot of fondness to, to, to memory. You know, when I was, a, when I was a kid, I had written a letter to, um, I, I think Elvis Presley had already passed away. And I wrote a letter to his house anyway, asking like if I could get something. I was probably like eight or nine years old, you know. And the cool thing, I'll, I'll never forget this. I remember writing on the envelope, like Elvis Presley, Memphis, Tennessee. Really? No address, nothing. Just Elvis Presley. <laughs> not, not even like Graceland. Right. Memphis, Elvis Presley, Memphis, Tennessee. And like two months later, I got something back in the mail. Wow, what was it? Like a postcard or some like it standard was, form something? Or yeah, it was a you know join the fan club, uh, like an eight by an eight by ten picture. Wow, and a join the fan club kind of thing, you know. Uh, but I remember being like, I held on to that as if Elvis sent it to me personally, man. Sure, like, sure, sure. <laughs> wow, that was that was big. And also back to what we were just talking about a moment ago about, you know, Bruce Lee, what he called, what he taught, you know, right. before it was really formalized into this. An interesting thing about, um, you know, it, it, it's funny because my my first exposure to all the, the Bruce Lee stuff was in Seattle, that non-classical Kung Fu period, like what I was learning that they all descended from that. So my first introduction to Wing Chun was not traditional Wing Chun. It was, it was Bruce Lee's Seattle era Wing Chun. So it was already like, we, I didn't learn the Siunam Tao form. I learned like, you know, the way he did the, the straight blast and the way he did the drop step punch and all that kind of stuff. And what's interesting for me is that, uh, although it, it doesn't have all the, um, the Seattle area stuff didn't have all the stuff of like timing and distance and stop hits and all that in the same way that the Jeet Kune Do stuff had. It was a very interesting transition point between traditional Wing Chun and what later became Jeet Kune Do because it's very, it's a very stripped down Wing Chun. And while a lot of traditional Wing Chun people talk about, oh, well, it's missing this or it doesn't have this. And you can definitely make very solid points about that. Um, what people also forget sometimes is that when it just comes to street fighting, which I believe was really Bruce Lee's main concern at that time. Right, sure. Um, to have a very stripped down, straightforward system is exactly what you need because the last thing you want to do when you're on the street and someone takes a swing at you is that you're thinking between 20 different ways of doing Tanso and stepping back and doing this. And you have just a very solid response that you can go in and it's repeatable. It's easy to learn. And Jesse Glover famously caused many Wing Chun people, traditional Wing Chun people fits when they would try to do Chi Sao with him because even though they had perhaps mastered the entire system or they knew Wooden Dummy or Buji to a degree that Bruce Lee never learned, but Jesse Glover essentially spent a, the, most of his life, all right, let's say from 1959, 1958, around the time that Bruce Lee was in Seattle till the time he died, which was what, 2013? So we're looking at 50 plus years. And what did he do? A very forward, aggressive straight blast, a very powerful drop step punch, 
a couple moves, Paxel, Lapsel, Tansel, Gansel, a straight kick, maybe an elbow, and Bong Tan and Fook with a lot of forward pressure. And with this very simple system, he would give most people fits. And I think people don't appreciate that, right? They can say, oh, well, this isn't proper way of doing Wing Chun or this is another expression. I, I understand that and they can have a valid point. But there's also an argument to be made for essentially spending your entire life doing 10 moves that you become such a badass at that you give everyone fits and he punched like a horse. Right. You I know, mean, Jesse Glover was always known for that punch and this is really quite incredible. The perfect example of what you're talking about is the sport of boxing. Right. Essentially, boxing's four techniques. Yes. I mean, right? I mean, four techniques with some timing. It's, it's a, they, they practice those four techniques and train them athletically. You know, that they would give any martial artist, not just a fit, they'd give them a, a, a black eye. Sure. And I remember when I first started training with Steve Golden way back when, and I, I was I used to annoy him with um, ridiculous questions about trapping progressions. It oh, was yeah. it, well, yeah. I mean, I remember him giving me a list of the 1967 trapping progressions. Wow, it was like 27 progressions, and and I would annoy the hell out of him with these progressions. Why do we do this? Why do you do that? And he did none of them. Like he did. <laughs> It was like, sure. and I never forget like him telling me probably in a fit of annoyance uh, on my back deck that everything should be a straight blast. So it's a straight, everything's a straight blast. Your fight should be a punch. Everything else you learn is for when things go wrong. Right. If you, so it's a straight blast. You're like, someone throws a punch at you. You're blasting into their punch. Yes. It's everything else you do in the system is for when this something goes wrong during you punching the shit out of the guy. Right. You know, and that if you keep it in your head, that as long as I know when to step forward, I understand the timing, I understand how to control the relationship. That the the greater points in what Bruce Lee was doing, at least as as it was taught to me through Steve was not so much in the, the 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 volume of techniques, but in the understanding of when two or three techniques should and could be used. That there was this idea of the manipulation between the the um, between the movements and uh, of, of of you and your opponent, of when the proper time to step in, the proper time to step out, change an angle. And, and start and punch. That once you had that down, it was all about a straight blast. Right. That was it. Because if you understood that the controlling of the distance, the timing, how to break the rhythm, you don't need anything else except a punch. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and, and to me, that was really the essence of Bruce Lee's art, was this idea of this distance, timing, and rhythm. Because once you had that, it didn't matter. See, at that point there, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if it's a finger jab or a straight blast or a straight punch or whatever the hell you want to. You know, that's where your own personal whatever comes out. But this idea of distance, timing, and rhythm is how you can have a stripped-down art. That's why boxers can kick the fuck out of martial artists. Mm -hmm. Boxers can kick the fuck out of martial artists because they understand timing and distance and rhythm 
in a way that they don't need more than four techniques to change up the angles. You know what I mean? You, Mike Tyson got better and better and better, not by, by learning more and more technique. Mike Tyson got better and better and better at learning ways of using the three or four techniques he knew. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? And, that, and that's, I think, the essence of what Bruce Lee was doing. And I can understand what you're saying about how, you know, Jesse Glover probably drove people into fits with his, with you know, him just punching the, sh punching yeah, the shit just, out of people. Just touching hands with them and just running right through them and they weren't able to do much with it. Yeah. Now, did you get to did you get to train with Jesse or no? I actually didn't because uh, when I was when I was training in Seattle, so the the particular school I was at, the instructor or that line, he had learned from both James DeMille and Ed Hart. Okay. So what he taught was kind of a synthesis of both of those expressions. And as you know, it doesn't matter if your martial art is traditional or modern or whatever, but it's like we do James DeMille and Ed Hart stuff, not Jesse Glover's. Right. Yeah. You sure. Understand sure. What I'm saying. So these kind of divisions always exist. Now they were friendly with Jesse Glover, but Je Jesse Glover had a reputation among among that group that the training was kind of rough, and it was kind of a little bit more for roughnecks, and that you're not going to necessarily get nuance and detail if you train with Jesse. You're going to get punched in the face until you figure it out. Right. Now, now there's a certain demographic that that type of training is exactly what people want. But, you know, they, uh, that's how the school that I was at kind of tried to prop themselves up a little bit. So uh, um, so I only knew Jesse Glover's stuff by getting his books. And then I would compare that to what I was learning, which was the more kind of through uh, James DeMille and Ed Hart kind of stuff. So um, I, I loved it. And then I had communicated a couple times to with Jesse Glover by email. And of course, my Sivu, Sivu Kanspecht, what a lot of people don't know is Sivu Kanspecht was a follower of Jesse Glover for some time. Um, as a matter of fact, and uh, look, this is really old news. So if I tell it now, it's like, these are old politics. But basically what happened was, is my Sivu started following Leung Ting in 1976, right? He invites Leung Ting to Germany and uh, Sifu Kanspei starts learning Leung Ting's Wing Chun system. Now about four, three or four years later, things were already not quite so rosy between Leung Ting and Sifu Kanspei because, well, as I mentioned before, Sifu Leung Ting is brilliant Wing Chun guys, not always the easiest person to get along with. Right. So, so there were some, there were some issues already that my Sifu was having with um, the way Leung Ting, let's just say the way Leung Ting manages stuff. Okay. Um, and then, so what my Sifu did is he reached out to Jesse Glover in the late seventies, because what he wanted to do is he wanted to compare what, um, what he had learned from Leung Ting with what Jesse Glover did. Because remember, this is the 70s. Mm -hmm. Bruce Lee was still really super hot. You know, he'd only been dead for a few years and people still wanted to know. So my Sivu was already the head of the European Wing Chun organization for Leung Ting. He traveled to Seattle in the late 70s to learn from Jesse Glover. And he said that, you know, he remarked that Jesse Glover was very strong and not just strong physical strength, but his, his movements were very strong. His punches were very strong and his chisa was very strong. And it gave my Sifu some, some problems when he was doing chisa with him, like, because it's a, it's a different style. And, and this is a, a, perhaps a topic for another day, but sometimes chisa styles and ways of doing chisa are, are incompatible, right? Because you mm -hmm. have one guy that does it as a training exercise, one guy that does it as a fight sure. and, and, and there are virtues of both, but sometimes we're really speaking different languages when we say let's do chisa, right? So, um, 
So anyway, my CEPA was very impressed with Jesse Glover because Jesse Glover was was very powerful and 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 so um and my CEPA was also a bit fed up with CEPA Lemting at that time. <laughs> so he started inviting Jesse Glover to Germany to teach seminars um, as part of the EWTO, which of course angered Lerington very much. But at this point, there was a period of three years, like I think it was 79 to 82, where my Sivu did not invite Lerington to Germany, and he was essentially exclusively inviting Jesse Glover. So Jesse Glover would come to Germany and teach seminars. And you know what happened? First seminar, everyone came because it's like, well, this is Bruce Lee's first <laughs> right, student, sure. everyone wants to see it, right? So Jesse Glover came and he taught his system, you know, drop, step, punch, you know, uh, straight blast with, you know, weight on the front leg, stepping in, kind of more hunched forward, aggressive, like I call it tank style Wing Chun. Right. And then so, and doing that and everyone was really impressed. He was very powerful. Came back a year later or maybe later that year, I don't know what it was. And um, more people came because they heard about how powerful he was. And Jesse Glover taught the same exact thing. And then like the third year, he taught the same thing. Right. And then they quickly realized, and, and this is not to say that the depth of Jesse Glover's understanding wasn't very deep, but Jesse Glover essentially only knew a few things. And what he knew, he knew very well. And he really essentially, in that case, practiced Kung Fu. He had a high level of achievement through very hard practice. It just happened that it was in a minimal set of techniques. So it the the Germans thought that it was like like in Wing Chun, you have Siunam Tao and Chum Q and, right, 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 and right, all right. this curriculum, and it's very layered and Chi Sao and everything. And Jesse Glover came within essentially three seminars, had exhausted his entire curriculum. And, and people started to realize that that was kind of it. And then the addendum to that story was Sifu eventually kind of patched things up with with Leung Ting a little bit and invited Leung Ting back in 83. And of course, Leung Ting was very, let's just say he wasn't happy because one, he wasn't being invited to Germany for three years. So he had missed out on some seminar revenue. And two, of course, he wasn't happy because as you know, in the traditional martial arts sense, it's like his student was learning from somebody else, you know, and this is all right, like sure. as bad as, as cheating on your spouse, you know what I mean? And so, uh, when Leung Ting saw my Sifu and they kind of tried to hash things out, Leung Ting said, um, and, and so I've heard this story from both my Sifu and from Leung Ting. Okay. okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the composites, which is like the facts that overlapped from both of them, because there are some small discrepancies in the way they both tell the story. Right. But literally, my Sifu told me the story, and then Leung Ting told me the story. So I will, I will layer the two together so as to not uh, exaggerate. Leung Ting says to my Sifu, so what, what did the Brack guy teach you? <laughs> right? Like, that, like <laughs> you know, in a very kind of dismissive, like, you know, what yeah. is some Black guy going to teach you that um, – that your Chinese Sifu who learned from Yip Man couldn't teach you or something like that, right? And then so um, my Sifu said, well, he's he's one of the fastest I've ever seen in Chi Sao, and he's also very strong, and he has a very fast back fist. And then Leung Ting very defiantly says, okay, you can try it. You know, like, like oh, in that kind God. of like, you know, like, like, kind of like, all right, you, you want to, you, you want to like show me this, right? So they do chi so, and as you know, one of the big combinations in either non-classical kung fu or in jeet kune do is that lapsau back fist 
right. from Punso, which is strictly speaking not an orthodox Wing Chun technique. It's just a kind of a thing people like to do. So my Sivu tries, and 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 I know from what I heard, my Sivu really tried to take Leung Ting's head off with the back fist right. because he really wanted to see, all right, like let me test now finally what I got. And when he tried the back fist on Leung Ting, it didn't work. And Leung Ting cracked him one really hard. <laughs> and, and of course, because the Chinese teaching method, Leung Ting has a whole battery of these anti kind of lapsel back fist things that are so common in the Wing Chun styles. It's just that he perhaps did not teach that to my Sifu, but it's it's really normal. Like we teach our students how to handle this very common lapsel back fist that is all over the Wing Chun world. And he tried three times on Leung Ting and couldn't do it. And Leung Ting apparently cracked him and split his lip and punched him. There was probably a little bit of anger inside there. Sure, yeah. And, then, and that's when my Sivu realized that he still had something to learn from Leung Ting and uh, then basically followed him or whatever. But since that time, there were very small um, uh, bits of the EWTO curriculum that were always influenced by Jesse Glover. And even when I learned at the castle back in the day, there were little pieces that I know, ah, this is not from Leung Ting, this is from Jesse Glover. So that was perhaps part of the early success of people like Emin and stuff like that. Not to say anything bad about the, the Leung Ting Wing Chun, but yeah. it, was, it was fortified with a couple of like Jesse Glover-esque ideas. And uh, that was kind of the... <laughs> That, that kind of 80s to 90s period uh, WT. So anyway. No, that's that, that's really interesting. That's some cool stuff. <laughs> when you when you trained with um in in the James DeMille organization. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in his organization. My my the, the guy who taught me was one of James DeMille's students. Okay. Who, who created his own style, but he did it with with the blessing of James DeMille. So he wasn't like a rebel or somebody who was ousted. So he he um he synthesized Ed Hart and James DeMille stuff together, but James DeMille gave him the okay to do that. Okay. There was a guy I used to know 20 years ago, and I'm trying to rack my brain, mm-hmm. my battled freaking brain, mm-hmm. about what his name was, because we we all called him the mother load. Because <laughs> He was like six foot five, two eighty, kind okay. of thing. Average. And I was right. I was just wondering if you knew who he was. Uh, I'm sitting here trying to, like, I've been thinking about him, and I'm like, I wonder if, like, you know, if he's still. I haven't spoke like because we were actually pretty good friends on the internet before Facebook, mm-hmm. and like it kind of like all disappeared after that, you know. And I would love to freaking, and I can't remember his name to save my life, other than because all we did was refer to each, I referred to him as the mother load. <laughs> That's funny. What, just because of his size, or was it yeah. something that he would say? Or what, uh, it, was, it was his size, you know, it was just he was a big dude and he was powerful. And, right. You know, and, um, and I, I, I don't know. And I, there was talk like for a while that he was going to take over. The, was his uh, name like Ambrose or something like that? No, it's not. It's not Ambrose. It's somebody else. Uh, Patenod. Yes. Jacques Jacques Patenod. Maybe that's it. Yeah, because I'm such a geek. I never even met him, but I I know. I, I I've read so many books and came across so many. My God, am I a geek? Holy crap! Yes, and it wasn't he in Canada. I, you know what? I'm I'm I have to. He I had have like to... Move, he had moved to Canada at some point or something. Oh, like see, that. I don't know. I I gotta. I gotta check this out now. I gotta. She, uh, 
I'm, I'm gonna go nuts here thinking about this. This is yeah. I think that might be. I think that might be who it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I no, to... I never. I never met him, but I think the two of them had a falling out or something right, like I think that. So. It's like pretty, pretty typical in the martial arts. Also, uh, you know, because I, I, my first intro into Wing Chun formally was through this non-classical kind of early mm -hmm. Seattle period stream, and then of course later. I became a total, you know, Hong Kong Wing Chun Yip Man geek. So I, I, I feel that in that case, I kind of have been in both worlds and I kind of know sure. a little bit about both. Um, the Hong Kong side of, of, you know, whether Bruce Lee felt confident calling it Wing Chun, maybe that's why he called it Chun Fan or whatever it is, of course. On the Hong Kong side, they're like, well, you know, Bruce wasn't qualified as an instructor. So if he had said what that he was teaching Wing Chun, that's a bit presumptuous uh, on his part. And you know the 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 famous green book that uh, Bruce Lee wrote, the Wing Chun book, that is kind of what lends itself to a very big Hong Kong conspiracy among Hong Kong Wing Chun students. That the reason Bruce Lee said that James uh, James Yim Lee was the author of that book is because Bruce Lee not dare put his own name on the title of a book called Wing Chun because then it's like saying he wrote a book on Wing Chun and people were like. Dude, you only learned the chum Q form and you know, right. didn't teach you crap. He was all on opium at that time. You were learning from him. And Wong Sun just taught you how to fight but didn't teach you any advanced technique or whatever, right? So, of course, what people don't know is that, you know, when and then when you've been around kind of the Bruce Lee people is that, you know, Bruce Lee wrote that book and, and gave the credit to uh, James E. M. Lee as the author to pay for his cancer treatments. Right, he right, had right. cancer at that time, right? But, of course, in Hong Kong, they go, oh, you see – that is the proof that he not dare put his name on a book named Wing Chun because he knew he was not qualified. Because the Hong Kong Chinese mentality is always very suspicious and they always assume that everyone has ill intent and they're always trying to like find a way to blame. And I never, uh, I never agreed with that, you know, because I'm like, well, if Bruce Lee didn't feel he was qualified to put his name on a book entitled Wing Chun, why would he then feel that then his student was? You know what I mean? So like, right, right, I, I, right. So I always found that kind of a bit of a dubious Wing Chun conspiracy uh, uh, story. I'm just like, no, you guys just—they're always looking for something to pick. You know what I mean? And then they'll always find it the most ridiculous stuff. You know, I don't remember exactly which letter it was. In one of the books, there's a Lee letter where he says he he lies. He oh really? He, I'm pretty sure of it. I should. So before I say this, I you know, I there's a good chance I'm wrong, folks. I've been punching the head a lot, but I'm pretty sure that there's a letter out there where Lee says to somebody, "I completed the Wing Chun system." Really? Yes. And I, I you know, this is gonna all weekend. I'll be working on this now too. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there's a letter out there. Where Lee says that he completed the Wing Chun system. Maybe he meant he he had completed the essence of the Wing Chun system, though he had I'm not sure formalized the techniques or whatever. I'm sure there's some way of uh, politicking around it, but yeah. But um, I, I God, I gotta find that. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. Look, look that up and see. I, I remember that um, uh, a student of Bruce Lee's had told me personally that he was in the car once with Bruce and then Bruce was talking about there being like other weapons in Wing Chun beyond the Batam Do and, and the long pole. And I was like, like in Yip Man Wing Chun, they're like, yeah. And I'm like, mm, mm. E either 
that person misheard Bruce Lee, which is totally understandable, right? Maybe Bruce right. Lee had inferred other Southern Kung Fu styles had weapons or maybe another version of Wing Chun and they thought he meant Yip Man Wing Chun right. or, or Bruce was just straight up riffing nonsense. Who knows? Right, right, you know right, exactly. I mean? Because at that time, and this is, and, and again, this is all speculation and I'm not saying Bruce Lee was a liar. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm just like in general, in the pre-internet days, all right. And it's not, and look, misinformation flows like, 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 like rivers, you know, crashing nowadays with the internet. So it's not like the internet uh, means that we don't have misinformation. But the thing is, if you're a Chinese guy from Hong Kong with an accent in the sixties, and the only way you can learn martial arts is either from a Chinese dude or from reading an article in a magazine, those people tend to have a lot of power and a lot of sway in terms of what they tell people. And this is why in the early days, so many people believed in, you know, in, in um, mystical chi powers and, oh, there's this guy in China who can do this. Right, sure. Right? And, and, and these things got so much like uh, um, kind of unwarranted street cred. And, um, and sometimes these were things that were misheard or slightly blown out of proportion. But it's like I was having a conversation uh, with one of my students uh, last week about how people get bent out of shape in Wing Chun when you mm, offer an alternative version of the history based on something you heard. They're like, no, Yip Man said it's from Moi and Yip Wing Chun and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and it's right, like, right, look. Right. Yip Man wasn't a historian. Yip Man was passing on a story. I, I said this. I said, look, if I tell you a story right now, a five-minute long story, chock full of details about, I don't know, let's just pick a topic. Let's say how I learned the bacham do from my kung fu uncle. All right? I'll, I'll tell you. Let's just say I tell you that story now, Sean, in brutal detail. Five minutes. It's not recorded. It's not video. I tell you every little bit about how he taught me this and showed me this and why he taught me this version and not that version. I give you the whole skinny. How accurately will you tell that story one week from now? Oh, right. I totally agree. Right, right. right? And then right. how accurately will you tell that story three years from now? Right. And then you're going to tell somebody who's going to tell that story and how I, and the thing is like. The old game of telephone. Yeah, it's the game of telephone, but people don't really, like, if you just say it, like, so directly, everyone will agree with you. Yeah, obviously, the story's going to be distorted. The story's going to change. Yet, people will defend to the death the history that their Sifu tells them. They will defend to the death claims of legitimacy or illegitimacy within a lineage based on what somebody said. Right. And, and it's like, and even think about this. Tomorrow morning, Sean. I'm going to call you up and say, hey, tell me everything we talked about on the podcast last night. Yeah, I know. You see yeah. what I mean? Like, like, and it'd be like, you'd remember a couple details. Barely, because I'm barely listening right now. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? But you would, you would tell it a little bit differently, and sure, you would probably absolutely. get little transition stories we told in between these other topics. And every normal sane human being would agree with this point. Yet at the same time, if you disagree with a student of Yip Man that Wing Chun might actually come from this and not this, they'll be like, no, my Sifu said so-and-so. And you're like, dude, you cannot even retell this story one week from now. Get the hell out of here telling me that Yip Man's story was 100% accurate. Your recollection of Yip Man's story was 100% accurate. And people put so much faith and stock in secondhand hearsay. It's unbelievable, man. Well, the magic words in that whole thing that whole is the idea of my sifu said 
Yes. We both know that, you know, people forget that Sifu's teachers are human beings. Yep. And with, with egos, with agendas, with, you know, with the way, with an idea in their head as the way they want to be seen. Right. Even if it's subconscious. And students tend to put their teachers on a pedestal. Yes. And honestly, truly believe that, oh my God, I'm learning from the most moral, honest person in the world. Right. So the Sifu may subconsciously even like maybe twist the story a little bit. Right. Like saying they learned Kung Fu in some castle in Germany. Like, we both know that didn't fucking happen. Never, never. <laughs> well, like, no, like, you know, we've all heard the story of like, oh, I, I learned Kung Fu from the dishwasher at the Chinese restaurant or yes. some other line of bullshit. And and I don't remember his name, by the way. Right. I don't, and it was a super secret, like, you know, super secret system of Kung Fu passed down from his uncle to his, you know, and, and it's a whole bunch of bullshit. But the students eat that shit up because yep. they they truly see their, their teachers as this like really honorable person. And and they forget that the guy's a human being. That like, you right. know, he wants to be seen as this I mean, and he may be teaching solid system. He may be teaching something really good. Right. But he kind of feels like he has to he has to like justify what he's teaching. Sure, sure. And, you and, know, and, the and kung fu, the kung fu is not good enough on its own. It needs to be propped up by generation, lineage, rank, and who learned whom from what. You know, and it's funny for me. I I've experienced both sides of this in that I've had students who like thought I knew much more than I did <laughs> and would respect me much more than I should than they should have respected me. <laughs> and then I've had students who are like I'll teach them something. And the first thing out of their mouth is, well, now, did you learn that from Steve Golden or Tom Kagan? Uh-huh. My two Sifus. And if I if I'd say something like, oh, it's something I kind of came up with on my own, I could see the boredom enter their face. Right. You know what I mean? Like, oh, oh, it's something you came up with? Nah, it's not interested. Like, yeah. they wouldn't say that to me. They would just say, oh, okay. Right. But so... Not that I ever did this because I would always be afraid of getting caught. If I wanted to prop up something that I was teaching that was good and make this person pay attention, I would have to say it was either from Steve Golden or Tom Kagan. Right. I couldn't say, oh, this is something when one day I was playing around with my buddy Walt and we were doing some chisau and he did something and I did it. I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. I never did that before. Let me try that again. Let me see where I can place that and what we're doing. And like, even if like, it's the same thing you've been doing for the last 20 years, it was to me like, Oh shit, I just came up with this. Right. And, and unless I could point to a specific person I learned it from, there are some people that have no interest in learning what you developed. Exactly. Which is ridiculous considering that every single thing we do and every single technique we learn, somebody came up with at some point, it's like, right. what, what, what is that threshold when something is like, oh, that's just some shit you made up now, or now it's a traditional technique. You know what I mean? It's like, is that 15 years? Is it 20 years? Right, is right, it 50? Right. Or is it just that whoever came up with it needs to be dead? Right. Right. <laughs> right? Like, like, like where, where's that threshold when now suddenly something is traditional enough? You know, you don't have these hindrances in 
wrestling, boxing, jujitsu, you know what I mean? But, but in traditional martial arts, you have it. And you made a really interesting point. It's like, uh, Sivus will sometimes do it subconsciously. Maybe it's a slight embellishment to prop up a point or to make a story funny or something like that. But my point about like the problem with oral history and all that stuff is this. Let's say your Sifu doesn't embellish one bit, tells the story 100% the way he understands that he heard it, does not add anything to make himself or his teacher sound better. Like really you have, let's say, the most straightforward, honest guy in the world. My point still stands in that you, I'm not saying you personally, Sean, but in general, could not retell everything we talked about on this podcast two weeks from now. Totally agree. And and if I told you that five-minute-long story with all the details about how I learned the knives, you would not be able to accurately tell all of those things a week or two or three from now, much less the person you told it to. So even if we took away the embellishments and 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 like the forgetfulness and the filling in gaps with other shit that people naturally do. Let's say you told the most honest, straightforward recollection of it. There is no chance the story can be accurate. We're just not, our minds are not built that way. And so unless it's written down or on video, do you know, um, uh, th- there was an experiment done many years ago. I read it in the book Subliminal. And Subliminal is a great book on this topic about how the human brain misremembers stuff by design, all right? <laughs> and and so there was an experiment. Now, of course, the details I might get a little bit off, but it's in the book. Now, here's really interesting. Freshman year of at some university, during a lecture, the professor had this whole thing staged. He had somebody run into the middle of the lecture hall and do some crazy thing, like, I don't know, uh, th- throw a bunch of books on the table or maybe like rip a poster down or maybe a combination of stuff like that and look at the audience and say something, and then leave, all right? And then he immediately told everybody in there to take out a piece of paper and write down everything that they had just witnessed. Yeah, sure. And then so what, unbeknownst to them, he had filmed the whole thing, right? So then he collects all these things, and he starts reading these things out, and people who were all in that same room and witnessed the same exact thing happen, they were there live. They were first-generation students of this incident, to use martial arts terminology, right? They all had widely different interpretations of what had actually transpired in front of their own eyes just two minutes prior, right? So then here's the crazy thing. So first of all, we know that the initial recollection was already wrong, okay? So what that university professor did is, I think it was two or three years later, he said, do you guys remember that incident that had happened? I want you to write down now exactly what had happened. Right. Okay? So they wrote it down, and then what he did was he compared their recollection of it two, three years later with what they had initially written. Nice. And the crazy thing was, it wasn't that they, it wasn't like three years later, there were some details missing. In most cases, the major facts of the retelling were completely different. And so, and we're talking about a neutral story. We're not talking about embellishing your seafood. We're just talking like some shit that happened on the street someday, right? 
and their paper, and he took out their original papers and they looked at them side by side. And many students were convinced that their original paper had been altered wow. because they're like, no, 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 no. That's not what happened. It was this, 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 and this. And they were even contesting what they had originally written three years earlier. And then he played the video that they did not know was filmed. Right, right, right. Against it and realized not only was their current recollection totally wrong, their initial recollection was completely wrong. So, so this is the problem. We know this as scientific fact that we are shitty story. Well, we might be great storytellers, but we are shitty fact tellers. Well, that's spot on. And I actually experienced this. Wow. Like literally experienced this. I, I, I don't know if I said it on the podcast before. I know you know. So I worked as an auxiliary police officer in New York City for about 10 years. When you become an auxiliary cop, at least back then, this is well, maybe 25 years ago, maybe longer, 30 years ago, when I became an auxiliary cop, you used to go for like know, 15, 20 weeks worth of training. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, like 10 weeks in or something, we're having a class on some aspect of the law or police procedure. And during the class, this one guy comes running into the room and yells, is he in here? Is he in here? And another guy comes running into the room, pulls out what you think is a knife, stabs him in the chest. He turns around, the guy turns around to us and he screams something and then he runs out. And everybody like jumps up and like, you know. And the teacher's like, all right, everybody get down. This is a demonstration. And I'll never forget what the guy yelled out was uh, six semper tyrannis, the South is revenged or avenged. The South is avenged. He yelled out what John Wilkes Booth yelled out when he jumped from the stage and killed uh, uh, when he shot Lincoln. Lincoln. When he shot Lincoln. Okay. So the South was avenged and had us all then write what we witnessed. And he wanted the most detailed description of the victim and the assailant. Uh -huh. What were they wearing? Age, weight, height. And man, the descriptions were all over the place. And it was all, it was described to us because of adrenaline. But sure. like, you know, but like when people, like people don't remember as well as they think they're going to sure. remember. Like I remember the incident, but I can't, like remember exactly I remember like what the guy yelled out because when we found out it was that what 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 John Wilkes Booth yelled out, I thought that was like an interesting cool yeah, thing. That, that stuck with you in hindsight. Well right? I couldn't tell you what the guy looked like now that did it. You know what I mean? Like sure. And if I had to describe the story, I'd probably fuck up half of it right now. More, you know, it was just it was sure. Sure. And, and when when we talk about martial arts, it's it's so much more emotionally charged because of this love of seafood right and when when we when we talk about what happened in the history and you know like steve golden tells me stories and that he heard from bruce leo or my seafood tom kagan will tell me a story that moyat told him that moyat says he heard from Yipman, and people like you know will disqualify some of that you know right and of course, Tom, my seafood Tom, absolutely believes everything Moyat said to him. Why wouldn't he? Right. And and 
you know, and I'm sure that Moyap believed everything Yip Man said. But sometimes when you when you when you're like a an outside party, you're kind of like, hmm, that doesn't sound right or something to that effect, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, this this love and loyalty of Sifu can definitely lead some problems when it comes to the history and the martial arts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very, very interesting why people still hang on to that stuff. Uh, I mean, it's not like our Sifus are trying to lie to us, but they're like, oh, like right, absolutely. Like, well, we, it's just a matter of human recollection is garbage when it comes to telling facts. And this is just, this is verifiable. Um, by the way, uh, something also just happened a couple days ago. Um, the, the passing of Jun Ri, uh, the, the Taekwondo great here in America. And, um, you know, basically, essentially the, the father or grandfather of, of modern or American Taekwondo and, and, and had franchise schools and had developed, you know, such a huge following, new presidents, Ronald Reagan, all this stuff here. And then, of course, the sidebar about that is that, you know, he had a friendship with Bruce Lee. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we were discussing before this kind yeah, of issue, that, right? This, this, this fucking annoyed me. So Junri passes away. Junri was was a great man. You yeah. know, he was well respected. He was an honorable guy. He was a successful man. He taught an awesome product. You can say what you want about Taekwondo. There's got to be something to it that he taught, and the product became very popular. I mean, how many Taekwondo schools do you see in in, in America? And, sure. and and somewhere along can tra trace their lineage somewhere to Junri and his and people in his organization. Right, and I I kind of found it understandable, but slightly distasteful, the amount of JKD people that, in announcing Junri passing away, within the first sentence, is that oh, and he knew Bruce Lee. Junri, right. Jun a friend of Bruce Lee, passed away today. Yeah, as if Junri's only importance and existence in the martial arts community was that he was friends with Bruce Lee. Right. And that's just nonsensical bullshit. This, this was a great man. Yes, he happened to know Bruce Lee, but we shouldn't equate his importance with he knew Bruce Lee. Yeah. Because yeah, you know what? Absolutely. Quite frankly, it could be said, oh, Bruce Lee got to know Junri a little bit. Yeah. You know I mean, I, mean? I, I believe that Junri was also quite influential in Bruce Lee's kicking techniques, especially some of the stuff that he used for film. So, but it always kind of seems like, you know, it go, oh, goes the other way all the time, you know? And I think Bruce had right. a much more amicable exchange with a lot of these people than people would, would, would like to believe. I agree, dude. I agree. Uh, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. This was a lot of fun. Awesome, man. This was a lot of fun, dude. And uh, I, uh, I'm glad we're doing this again every week. And it seems like the people are happy. And Yeah, definitely. Uh, by the way, a couple things uh, before we get out of here. just want to plug sure. – uh, I'm going to be doing a seminar along with Mark Phillips and Jim Rosalando and uh, Phil Romero, uh, kind of a four Sifu Wing Chun seminar in Boston on May 26th. That's a Saturday. It's Memorial Day weekend, but hey, you got more to do than just get drunk and look at fireworks on Memorial Day. Do you, do you, wait, is Memorial Day fireworks? I don't even know. I don't I'm celebrate it. Fourth of July. I don't celebrate any of these nonsense holidays. I got, I, I got my own business, right? So um, uh, May 26th, it's a Saturday. It's a bunch of hours of uh, all these great Sifu's teaching and me as well. Um, and the topic is Buji. Um, we're all going to teach Buji from a different perspective. Obviously, it's it's not the Buji form per se, but 
Bugian application, Bugian cheese out, different perspectives on the Bugian form. And I look very much forward to uh, um, doing that and, and, and teaching you this. If you guys are interested, go to Jim Rosalando's page on Facebook. There's an event or, or look for the event page for the Boston Wing Chun Gathering and uh, sign up for it. Space is limited. We're, we're already got a bunch of people signed up. I don't think we have that many spaces left. So go ahead and sign up for that if you happen to be in the Boston area on May 26th. Um, also, my new movement uh, for Wing Chun book is coming out in the middle of May as well. That's going to drop at that time. Um, we more updates on that. It's a book and video series uh, together. So I'm um, looking uh, uh, very much for the first book of its kind. We're improving the movement in Wing Chun, not just teaching Wing Chun techniques, but how to move better hip, ankle, shoulder, and wrist mobility and strength training so that you can actually perform Wing Chun at a very high level. And uh, lastly, just a big recommendation for you guys out there. The Cobra Kai series on YouTube is <laughs> amazing. I put it on this morning just as a joke. I'm like, oh, let me see what this is like. It is very well written. It's funny. It's textured. It's it's really fantastic. We have YouTube read. Highly recommended. I'm not even kidding. It's no joke awesome. Oh, so anyway. Cool. With that, guys, don't forget to support Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine, our number one sponsor. We're super happy that they're always behind us. Great magazine and great column every time written by yours truly. Sean, <laughs> I had a really great time, uh, and I look forward to seeing you next week, man. See you later, brother. Bye -bye. Uh, take care. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com slash support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of the Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes, as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with the Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com slash support to find out more about that. As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the Dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!